Lo, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers appear on the earth, the time of the singing of birds is come, and the voice of the turtle is heard in our land. Throws across his body, and he got him! Looking away, McCann around third, throw from the outfield is up the line, inside the park home run! He gone! And he makes the catch up against the wall. And he's going to watch it fly. Strike three called. He got him on strikes. Welcome to the Voice of the Turtle, a podcast feature of the Bless You Boys website. That's SB Nation's Detroit Tigers blog. You can find us online at www.blessyouboys.com. Also on Twitter at Bless You Boys. And on Facebook at facebook.com slash byb.tigers. I'm your host, Hookslide, here with my partner, Rob Rojacki. Hey, Rob, have you decided on a Halloween costume yet? I have, actually. Um, yes. I, uh, have a, <laughs> I have a, a group of friends that are getting together. Uh, they all decided to be superheroes, and I think most of them picked like an Avengers theme. Uh, so I'm going as Thor, which you know works with my luxurious blonde hair that I have right here. Yeah. <laughs> so you're going in a Noah Syndergaard jersey is what you're telling me? Uh, yeah, well, I, I'm actually going in a jersey, not the jersey. Jerseys are too expensive these days. Okay. I mean, either way. It's, do you think anybody would get it? I mean, you, you're close enough to New York and Mets territory and all that. Would would people get that if you showed up in a group of Avengers wearing Syndergaard's jersey? I think the one guy who is from New York that's going to be there will get it. I don't think anyone else would. <laughs> okay. Oh goodness! Well, I'm I don't I don't have a, a Halloween costume picked out yet. I'm, I think I'm a little bit beyond that. I've got kids I got to take uh, trick or treating, so it's just one of the situations now where I'm not allowed to dress up anymore. So you get to dress up as dad. Yeah, basically that's that's about it. I, I'm going as a blogger for this Halloween. So take pity, give me lots of candy. Anyway, let's uh, let's weigh anchor and hoist the sails then for this 11th episode of the show. We've got to do some hating on the Royals. Maybe we're going to burn down the Tigers roster. We're going to fix a glaring problem in left field, spray some champagne into the stands, take some listener questions, mostly having to do with bacon. And then we'll talk about Rob's secret plan for the Tigers offseason. But what do you say we round the bases first? The Tigers have a big hurdle next year that's completely out of their control. We'll talk about what that is when we get back. Six, six, pound ready delivers as a fly ball left field. This one's deep. This one's got a chance, and this ball is gone. A home run. Ian Kinsler delivers the walkoff. Number six for Ian. He rounds third. Heads into the mob scene at home. And the Tigers take the series from KC. A walk-off home run from Kinsler, 8-6. All right, let's get things started here with our first segment, Rounding the Bases. We're going to talk a little bit about the Tigers in 2016. They've got kind of a big hurdle to get over, and it's completely out of their control. But before we get into what all that means, uh, Rob, we have a pitching coach update. You provided me a link here in the show notes. Chris Iad of MLive reports that there are now six candidates what can you tell us about these candidates and any of your thoughts on them? Well, I don't even think we know all six at this point. Uh, the only 
couple pieces of information we do know, uh, one of them being that current bullpen coach Mick Billmeyer uh, is not one of the candidates to take over, so he's not pulling the Jeff Jones route and going from being the bullpen coach to the pitching coach. And the second one is that the two front runners are currently A.J. Saker and Steve McCaddy, who we talked about in the last podcast, but I didn't realize at the time that he's a former Tigers pitching coach. Which one? Uh, he was their Steve McCaddy. He was the former Tigers pitching coach uh, and was there, I believe, in 2002. Uh, and he's actually from Michigan. He's from Detroit. No kidding. So as the hometown hero, then, uh, does he have an edge? Uh, you'd like to think so. Uh, I think his his work in Washington should give him the edge over, over Sager. Uh, not as quite as uh, filled in on his credentials. Uh, but, you know, I, I'm encouraged that he's one of the front runners. You say he he worked with Washington, so there's there's some big names on his on his uh, resume, in terms of pitchers that he's worked with. Yeah, and he was their pitching coach last year, so he's worked with guys like Jordan Zimmerman, Steven Strasburg, uh, Gio Gonzalez. Uh, you know, is kind of one of those guys who, um, kind of like how Jeff Jones was, the, you know, with the Tigers pitching coach when they had Doug Fister, kind of come through a little bit of resurgence. Anibal Sanchez, uh, I think Gio Gonzalez is kind of one of more of those names that he. Deserves that McCaddy deserves a little bit more credit for than someone like Steven Strasburg, who you know was awesome to begin with. Sure, um, sure. You know, having some of these guys come in who you know they have a certain flaw. Uh, for Gonzalez, it was his command. You know, he was walking a lot of guys when he was pitching for the Oakland Athletics, uh, and after he was traded to Washington, he really kind of cut down on those and had a pretty good season. He was a twenty-game winner, I believe it was in twenty twelve, and was in contention for the Cy Young Award the same uh, the same year that R.A. Dickey won it for the Mets. Um, and so he was, you know, really kind of a, a win for McCaddy and the Nationals there. And then you have Jordan Zimmerman, who, you know, was a fairly highly touted prospect, but he wasn't on the level of a Strasburg or anything like that. And, you know, Zimmerman comes along, and he is the Nationals' best pitcher, arguably their best pitcher in 2014, uh, and had another strong year in 2015 to round, to come into free agency. So, but of course, the one black mark on McCaddy's record then is that he broke Doug Fister, clearly, right? I mean, that's that's what happened to Doug Fister when he left Detroit. He went to Washington, and then he just stopped pitching well. So that's clearly on the pitching coach. See, I think Doug Fister felt so bad for that trade that he got sent to Detroit, um, to Washington with, that he just kind of broke down himself. You know, okay. his elbow said, this is unfair. We We got to even this out somehow. And I think that's that's what happened. So it's Doug Fister's fault. Doug Fister broke himself, is what you're telling me. Yeah, I mean probably. it's about as reasonable a theory as that Steve McCaddy broke. I mean we were, <laughs> we were talking about this last week. It's it's you know that whole issue of trying to figure out what does a pitching coach even do in terms of you know contributions. Is it good? Is it bad? Is it indifferent? And it's just it's a fascinating subject to me. It'll be really interesting to me to see if say McCaddy gets the job and he comes to Detroit to see. You know, how long does it even take before you start to see the effects of a new pitching coach? A year, two, three? I mean, we have no idea what they do, so it's tough to say. Um, looking up AJ Sager's uh, resume right now, he is currently the the Tigers' roving pitching ex- instructor in the minor leagues. Uh, so he's already within the system, and he played for the Tigers from 1996 to 1998. Uh, he's from Ohio, so that's you know a big red flag right there. Uh, <laughs> but um, but we'll uh, we'll kind of see what happens there. He was uh, the pitching coach for the Mudheads in 2013, and then for the last two years he's been their roving pitching instructor throughout the minors. Well, we'll see which direction they go and what, if any, kind of difference that makes. It's just I guess it's more for the 
for the fans that put way too much stock in what a pitching coach actually does and what his impact is. So we'll just we'll maybe have a new name on the list for people to yell about and say, see, it's it's Sager's fault or it's McCaddy's fault. Fire him. Uh, I don't know. That's uh, I guess, you know, it's it's been so long since I can recall there being a change in pitching coach. I'll be, I guess, paying a little bit closer attention just because I'm curious now, you know, what kind of an impact they have on the game. So. Anyway, from pitching coaches, we go to the stuff that's going on tonight. We're recording on Tuesday night, which is happened to coincide with uh, Game 1 of the World Series. Rob, we uh, that was a heck of a series that, that we saw between the Toronto Blue Jays and the Kansas City Royals. I mean, right down to the... Uh, I, I hate to even relive it. I was rooting so hard for the Blue Jays. And the whole thing just fell apart. And Wade Davis pitched amazingly through what did he get a five out save in that in that game I think. And he had to, he pitched uh, separately like with an hour rain delay in between his uh, you know the time that he came into the game and the time that he came out and finished the game. The guy is just he's a monster. He really is. Um, you know you have you see closers and relievers and whatnot. They sometimes will have trouble you know, pitching, getting an out or two, and then going back to the dugout for a couple, for, you know, a few minutes as their, you know, offense uh, hits at the plate. Uh, and then having to go back out uh, is really kind of a struggle for some of these guys. Uh, and, you know, Wade Davis had to go back into the clubhouse and sit around for an hour during the rain delay. I believe I read stuff later that said he didn't even throw a single pitch uh, while he was, you know, underneath in the clubhouse in the tunnel or anything like that. He was just kind of, you know, trying to mentally prepare and whatnot. Uh, they had him continuously, you know, stretching and I think heating his arm and things like that to stay warm. Um, but then to have him come back out and do that, uh, you know, a couple of umpire-aided strikes, I will say. Mm-hmm. He definitely got a few uh, calls going his way. But at the same time, you know, it's it's tough to say that, you know, that the Blue Jays would have been able to actually score more runs off of one of the most dominant pitchers in baseball. It was a hell of a performance, and I was, uh, you know, it looked like he might have been losing his stuff just a little bit there towards, towards the, uh, you know, well, I guess it was the ninth inning. Or no, they went to extra innings that night, didn't they? Or did they only go nine? No, Gosh, I think it was nine. Confused. They were they were going to go to extra innings, but then Davis kind That's of right. slammed or closed. That's right. Uh, you know, it's just kind of how how dominant he is. He's incredible. I just remember that they had the tying run on third base with nobody out. And somehow Wade Davis, after taking an hour's break for a rain delay, managed to go out there and burn through the hard part of the lineup. Josh Donaldson was the last guy he had to face with a guy on third base. It was just it was incredible. I mean, of course, Donaldson didn't help. You know, here's your potential AL MVP. And he goes, what, 0 for 4, 0 for 5 in that game. But still, I mean, wow, what, what a performance by Wade Davis. How soon before we can get him on the Tigers? I don't know, but here, I got, I got a little quiz for you. Okay. How many runs has Wade Davis given up in the last two seasons? Regular seasons, not including playoffs. How many runs total in the last two regular seasons? I'm going to go with seven. That's higher than that. It's he gave up seven earned runs this season. Seven this season. Okay. Yes. All right, well. 16 total. I was going to say, we'll go about double that. Two seasons. That's That's crazy. No, I'm thinking of the stat um, that they flashed on on the screen that night that said he hasn't given up a run in the postseason since the American League Division Series. I think it was like Game 2 or Game 3 last year. So he has... uh, It's just an incredible run that he's on. So, uh, yeah, again, how soon before we can get him to the Tigers? He's under contract through 20... He's under contract. He's got two team options coming up. He's under contract through 2017. Okay. 
So we have to wait till 2018 at least. And I'm sure by then his arm will have burned up and fallen off, and then the Tigers won't want him. But they'll get him anyway, and then he'll be really bad. That's the way Joe our... Nathan experience. Exactly. Exactly how that goes. So now that we're into the World Series, and you know, I, I was rooting for the Jays to get there, not the Royals, but it's you know, it's there. It happened. Kind of wanted to see the Cubs get into it just for the, you know, there's that whole curse and drought and all that fun stuff. But here we are, Mets, Royals. Obviously, it's it's let's go Mets, right? Ah, uh, yeah. I mean, if anything, I'm just rooting for seven games. I want right. to see a long series like we did last year. You know, that Giants-Royal series was a lot of fun. Uh, you know, seeing the raucous crowd both at Kauffman Stadium uh, and in AT&T Park in San Francisco, uh, especially for, you know, that Game 6 and Game 7 when the Royals were so close to, to winning the title themselves. It was really a lot of fun to watch. Um, I definitely want the Mets to win overall, but I, I think I'd rather see, you know, Royals win in seven than the Mets win in four or five. Okay, I'll take that. As long as it goes seven games, that's, I think, primary uh, primary goal there. And then a secondary goal would be to have the Mets win. It's so funny to me, though, Rob, because like I see so much, whether it's on Twitter or it's, uh, comments on our own site, there's like so much Royals hate out there. And it it finally like occurred to me today, I thought, that's really kind of strange, because I feel the same way. I mean, screw the Royals, you know, uh, because they're they're the Tigers' natural divisional enemy and isn't that just a little bit strange I mean, it strikes me as strange now, now that i think about it because there, it seems like there ought to be maybe the flip side of that like no that's that they represent the al central so go al central yeah i've never really thought like that um you know especially i the the thing that i kind of think back to with uh, an argument like that is you know college sports and college football um, you know, when Ohio State is in a bowl game, I definitely don't want them to win. I definitely did not want them to win the national championship last year, even though they represent the Big Ten. Uh, I've never, you know, really kind of taken that approach with any of it. Um, you know, I think about the Royals in particular, and yeah, you know, I don't want them to win this, but I, I think about their team, and there's not really anybody in that team that I dislike. Right. It's just that I'm rooting against the laundry here, but, you know, the players themselves, I think they're, you know, a pretty entertaining group. I think that you know, Alcides Escobar, who hit a inside-the-park home run on the first pitch of the World Series tonight, um, you know, he's entertaining. He swings at everything, and it's great, and I think it's funny. Um, I think Salvador Perez is pretty awesome behind the plate for them. You know, obviously, Wade Davis is an absolute monster that I like to watch pitch whenever he's not pitching against the Tigers. Uh, you know, they've got a lot, of, a lot of fun players on that team. It's just that I don't want that team to win. Yeah, and I don't either, and I can't figure out why. Because, like I said, okay, last year is a different story. Last year... You know, it was the Tigers and the Royals fighting it out neck and neck and the Tigers barely taking the division. And yet somehow the Royals still advanced farther in the playoffs than the Tigers did. So there's that bit of, hey, you know, you took our spot kind of thing. This year, there's none of that. You know, they the, the Royals won first place by a large margin over everybody in the AL Central. The Tigers were never really in competition for it. So it's not like they knocked us out to get there. So, and like you said, it's kind of a fun team to watch. It's... uh they've got the, the whole storyline going for them. This would be the 30th year uh, anniversary of their last World Series win. So as a Tigers fan, I can relate to saying, yeah, 30 years is a long time to wait. I mean, it's there, there's a lot of reasons there to, you know, maybe root for them. And yet I cannot bring myself to do it. My my theory is it's it's Ned Yost. I can't stand the guy. He's 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 Brad Osmus, but in a Royals uniform. So I'm kind of always rooting for him to entertain me and fail in the process. See, I think it's more the Mets. Um, you know, I, 
between Ioannis Cespedes and all their young aces and the whole ridiculous Daniel Murphy homer streak and all that. Uh, they're kind of, you know, a fun team to root for. Uh, it seems like the Mets are, you know, more the underdog in this case, whereas the Royals, odd as it seems, they've actually become the favorites. Uh, we, I think we were definitely rooting for the Royals last year when they were playing the Giants, who have won every odd-year <laughs> right. World Series and however long, or even year World Series and however long. Um, so I think it's more just, uh, you know, kind of us uh, rooting for the underdog. And it seems like the Royals have almost become the favorites at this point rather than the under, uh, underdog. And that's got to be entirely based on the pitching. I read a really cool article, maybe you did today too, by Grant Brisby talking about the fact that, you know, you're looking at two perennial losers in the series. Somebody's going to win it. But he, when he did that kind of team-by-team comparison, uh, I think it was when he was comparing like their batting averages and like their weighted runs created plus, they're pretty much dead even in terms of their offense. And so you give the slight advantage to the Mets. I have to. I think you have to because you've got Degrom, Syndergaard, Harvey. You know, it's it's kind of like the Tigers in 2013. That by the time you get to the number four guy in the rotation, you're looking at a guy who probably could be a number two or even a number one on some other team. Yeah, um, I didn't read that particular article, but I read one by Jeff Sullivan at Fangraphs. Uh, and you know, side note for anyone who's listening to this podcast and reading our stuff who isn't reading anything that Brisby or Jeff Sullivan writes, you're doing it wrong. Those guys are awesome. Yeah, stop, um, stop the podcast. Go find something by Grant Brisby, and then and then come back to us. Yeah, um, but anyway, so Sullivan wrote about how um, he was looking particularly at the Mets starters against the Royals offense uh, because the Mets have the hardest throwing pitching staff in baseball. And the Royals make contact more than anyone. And even at a historical rate, he was saying that they put the ball in play, uh, you know, as well as any team has in recent memory. Um, so he was looking at exactly how they fared against fastballs. I think they were like 90 mi- 95 miles an hour or higher. And he found that the Royals, you know, fare a lot better than most teams against those pitches because they're able to put them in play better than anyone else. Um, you know, their offense still declines against those types of pitches compared to uh, you know, fastballs at lower velocities, but it didn't decline as much as other teams. So, you know, that was kind of an interesting fact. Uh, and uh, he almost gave the edge to the Royals in the series because of that. Uh, you know, these Mets pitchers who are so used to getting by on strikeout after strikeout, you know, and then the ball gets put in play on them. And the Mets have a, you know, relatively suspect defense, especially when Juan Lagares isn't playing center field, uh, such as he is not tonight. Um, and so, you know, it's almost like the, the ball gets put in play against these pitchers and they almost don't know what to do. Yeah. That makes, I think, uh, Grant Brisby kind of made the same point about the Mets defense, especially up the middle shortstop second base and said, it's not quite as good as what the Royals have going. So you can see, you know, the situation where the, if the Royals are making a lot of contact, there's going to be a lot of balls potentially anyway, that, that just kind of squeak through, you know, the infield cause they get past that Mets defense where that's not going to be the case with the Royals. Those guys are just amazing at their defense it's it's just incredible what they do year after year so yeah maybe you give the edge to the Mets because of the pitching um but I don't know the offense like like you're saying is kind of there's kind of an equality there you know between them but I'm just not sure how the the Royals pitching staff can hold up you know against uh against what the Mets are doing and especially not with uh, Murphy in the lineup yeah I mean it seemed a lot like the Mets were really kind of reliant on the home run ball uh, during you know the other two series, but you know it's tough to say how sustainable that will be in a short series. Uh, anything can really happen in just four to seven games. Uh, so if the if the Mets keep hitting home runs off these 
royal off the you know these royals pitchers then it'll be tough to it'll be really tough for the royals in particular because they're not exactly you know the type of team i mean you know they're sometimes able to come back against opposing bullpens uh, that offense has been you know pretty good late in inning in later innings but they don't necessarily get to go to their you know vaunted bullpen when they're behind uh, especially with the way that ned yost works uh, he isn't always going to his best arms when his team is behind and speaking of Ned Yost, I know I kind of clowned on him a little bit earlier, but I had to give him credit in that game. Uh, I think it was game six. Was it game six? Did they go six games in the championship series? My math yeah. is awful. It was game six. Yep, it was six. I, I thought it was uh, good for him. I didn't expect him to do it uh, the way he did, but when he brought Wade Davis, his closer, into the game, when it was tied. I mean, go figure. I, I could I, I sat there and I watched and I watched Davis get up in the bullpen and start to warm up and then I watched the Blue Jays tie the game improbably, and I, I remember saying to some people that I was watching the game with I said oh he's not going to use Davis now because that's not Yost's style he's he's very stuck by the the format you know if you you don't bring the closer in until you've got the lead and he'll probably sit him down and not use him again until they get to extra innings and somebody you know does something to take the lead for the Royals he did it he used Davis. Not only did he use him, he used him for multiple innings. So ugh, I, the, the world is like crumbling around me. I don't know what to do. That's one thing that I've seen managers do, uh, especially in the postseason. They're definitely more aggressive with how they use their better relievers and closers. Uh, we saw it a little bit with Jim Leland uh, when he was here. Um, we saw it a lot with Ned Yost last year. Uh, you know, he was very rigid during the regular season, saying Kelvin Herrera is his seventh inning guy, and Wade Davis is the eighth inning guy, and Greg Holland was the ninth inning guy. Uh, and last season, he was bringing in Herrera in the sixth inning, Davis in the seventh inning. Um, you know, more so in the more so in the eighth inning with Davis, uh, just because Herrera was so good at getting through six and seven, the sixth and seventh inning uh, during that postseason, um, and. And then, you know, it helps shorten the bullpen, especially with all the days off. You know, you can extend guys a little bit longer than what they would be used to in the in the regular season because there's not a game the next day. Hmm. Right, right. It's funny to watch them deviate from the standard practice like that in that situation. When it gets to the postseason, it kind of I feel like that proves, you know, the argument that we put out there. You know, the way that you're managing in the postseason, why are you doing it that way? Why are you mixing up the roles like that? Because it matters. Because you want to win. Because you can't lose. And to see that, you know, that attitude of, you know, must win, must do the right thing, must put best pitchers in highest leverage situations suddenly goes by the wayside in the regular season. It just, it makes no sense to me. But I'm sure they have some kind of explanation for why they do that. Well, I think it also, it kind of speaks to the relative format of the two you know, seasons. Sure. Uh, in the regular season, these managers, they're managing for 162, 162 games. They're not, you know, thinking just about today and not about tomorrow. You know, they've got to get through six months of the season with that entire pitching staff intact. You know, you can't burn a guy out in April and May uh, and then have him, you know, go to shit in September, like we saw with Jabba Chamberlain in <laughs> 2014. Right. Um, and so, but then when you get to the postseason, you know, they yeah, if you don't win today, you might have the next six months off. So they're a lot more aggressive with using these guys in hopes that they can you know, play another series. Yeah, I guess maybe more I'm thinking of the differences between, say, Brad Osmus and Jim Leland, because like you mentioned, Jim Leland could get pretty crazy and aggressive during the postseason, so much so that he went ahead and pulled Max Scherzer in out of the bullpen you know, in the seventh inning in the, uh, uh, the division series, it was, in 2013. In a must-win scenario, it's an elimina- elimination game for the Tigers, and he does something crazy like bring Max Scherzer out of the bullpen to do his thing. And uh, we just didn't really, I think, see that same kind of attack approach you know, from Brad Osmus in the 2014 
uh, postseason. But you know, that's that's going to take me down another path that I didn't want to go down. Um, we alluded earlier to the fact that the Tigers have a hurdle in 2016. It's a hurdle that's kind of out of their control. Of course, I'm referring to the Kansas City Royals. And just looking at uh, at the roster that they have, looking at the contracts that are on that roster, and the fact is it's like you know 99.99% of that team is coming back next year. A big chunk of that team is coming back in 2017. A smaller percentage, but still a significant portion of that team is going to be there in 2018. They're not going away. And they're not going away, especially next year, as the Tigers are trying to reboot so-called. Uh, I think the Kansas City Royals might pose kind of a major a hurdle for them to get over if they want to go ahead and win the division again. They definitely do. Uh, you know, the Royals have a few guys that are going to be free agents. Obviously, they lose guys like Ben Zobrist and uh, Johnny Cueto, uh, players that they didn't necessarily need to jump out to a huge division lead before the trade deadline. Uh, but they also may lose Alex Gordon, who has a player option for 2016. Uh, and if he does not pick up that option, he'll be a free agent. And it's tough to see the Royals being able to sign him long term. Uh, you know, they'll have a little bit of money to spend on another free agent if he leaves. Um, but at the same time, that's a pretty big hit to their roster. Uh, and, you know, we saw them do pretty well when he was out this season. But I think that with, you know, other teams kind of reloading within the division, uh, Minnesota's going to get a year older and a year better. Um, you know, the Tigers, you'd hope, are going to be a little bit better than they were this year. And we may even see, you know, better seasons from the White Sox and Indians. Um, I don't necessarily want to put the rest of the AL Central at the Royals' feet and say this is why they won. But, you know, with a tougher division slate, it, they may not be the same 95-win team that we saw in 2015. It was a pretty weak division. I mean, it's kind of strange to see. Usually the AL Central is, is a little bit better than that. But, yeah, the, the Royals managed to rip off 95 games, 95 wins uh, this season. The, their next nearest competitor was Minnesota, and they only won 83 games. Uh, so it, maybe it does kind of uh, raise this question. I think we'll get to it a little bit later. Um, but just this, I, I've been kind of throwing around in my head this uh, question of how many games do you think the Tigers need to win next year in order to secure that uh, first place division title to win the division. Yeah. Um, I'd say probably 92, 93 seems like a fair mark. Okay. Yeah. I, I think I had landed on, on uh, 93 as my, as my total, just looking at the, again, like I said, the fact that the Kansas city Royals won 95 this year, I'm not sure if they can repeat that next year. They could, um, I'm not sure. Um, but so between 95 for the Royals and then the fact that the Tigers took the division in 2014 by winning 90 and it's just kind of like, well, let's split the difference. <laughs> 90 wins is not going to take it in 2016. I don't think 95 is probably a little bit too high. So I'm going to go with, with 93, but we'll talk a little bit more about what that means, uh, in a, in an upcoming segment. Um, all right, so that'll wrap it up for our rounding the basis segment. When we come back from the break, we'll go to warming in the pen. I'm asking, do you want to finish in third place? Because this is how you finish in third place. Talk to you after the break. Here's the 2-2. It's in the fly ball. Right field. Deep and down the line. And gone. Victor Martinez with a two-run shot. Tigers back on top here in the seventh. They lead it 7-6. And welcome back. It's time for our second segment, Warming in the Pen. Let me talk a little bit about this issue here. Do you want to finish in third place? Because this is pretty much how you do it. But before we get to what that means, let's talk a little bit, Rob, about uh, our own Kurt Menching's recent article uh, talking about 
the tiger's going on a shopping spree. It's a fun idea to kind of bat around this idea that maybe, just maybe, Mike Illich will loosen up the purse strings a little bit and let the Tigers go, let the Alavila specifically go pick up a frontline starter. And I threw this crazy idea out there in a post of my own, just kind of being silly and saying, what are the three big, bold predictions for 2016? I said, oh, he's going to he's gonna sign Zach Greinke, you watch. Uh, Kurt took that same kind of line but said, skip Greinke, get David Price. Are either of these options even really remotely possible? Um, you know, it's tough to say whether they be possible or not. Uh, yeah, possible that's really the wrong word. To, probable. It's, it's, uh, I don't know if they're necessarily probable. Um, you know, you've got Mike Illich, who may or may not be uh, desperate enough, I guess is the best, the most PC way to put it, um, you know, for <laughs> acquiring a pitcher of that caliber, of that cost. Uh, whereas I think Al Aviva and the rest of the Tiger staff will say, you know, maybe we should spread the money out a little bit more, improve the depth of this team more so than getting another frontline starter. Uh, especially with Justin Verlander bouncing back in 2015, they don't necessarily need to go out and get an ace like that. If you get a couple of other solid guys, I think that that helps improve the pitching staff a bit more than, you know, one more guy. Uh, especially looking down the road when if you can sign, you know, a couple of solid guys for three or four years, then you're not strapped into the super long contract with a guy that's getting into his late 30s. Yeah, and that's that's part of the issue that Kurt brought up is that uh, Greinke is, I think, 32 or will be soon, and David Price is only in uh, 29 or 30. So you got a couple of years. Greinke's got a couple of years on Price. If you want to, you know, make the argument for go get the younger guy who will maybe give you more years of excellence, then, yeah, you go and sign David Price. Um but I, I'm going to disagree with this idea that they don't need a pitcher of that caliber just because, and this is something I was exploring too, uh, you know, this, um, you know, our teaser for this segment, this is how you finish in third place. It really comes down for me to that left field spot and the fact that they, I think they've really got to do something about that left field position just because uh, in terms of the actual math, in terms of the runs produced out of left field right now, Tyler Collins is not going to get the job done. If they stick with the Tyler Collins, even Rajay Davis, Tyler Collins platoon combo, they are going to end up, uh, let's say, 30, 35 runs short of where they need to be uh, to, you know, to potentially win that division title. So you talk about, okay, well, they can make up for that on the pitching side. If you prevent some runs, you can get away with scoring fewer runs. And I go, yeah, I get that. But the distance between those numbers, when you actually do the math, when you actually run it through the, the Pythagorean calculation, the conversion formula, you need an ace. You need a pitching rotation that's as good as 2013 that had Verlander, Scherzer, Sanchez pitching out of his mind. Well, you've got Verlander. You've got Sanchez, who may or may not be uh, having another garbage year or a good year but who's who's your max scherzer for next year then they don't have one uh that's really kind of the point there uh you know you have a couple guys daniel norris who may or may not you know fill in for that and be i think kind of uh maybe a little bit better than rick porcello especially with some of his elevated era numbers we saw um but they don't have another max scherzer in this rotation uh there isn't you know a david price uh, unless they go out and sign him type of guy um it's really and it really is down to you know how much they want to mortgage the future for the present uh if you're signing a guy like Granky or price you're gunning for 2016 2017 you know those first couple of years to try to win a ring during the prime years of some of your stars like justin berlin or miguel cabrera and really kind of worrying about what happens after that yeah, it's going to be an interesting uh, problem to solve because, like I said, you can either approach this from the standpoint of saying you beef up the offense, 
or you just really, really beef up that pitching. And when I start to run these numbers, and I, I had targeted the number of 750. I think you got to get about 750 runs uh, in order to secure that 93-win season that's going to take the division. But even scoring you know, in that range, you got to have a rotation that's only going to give up 630, 640 runs to do it. And you're, that's 2013, basically. The 2013 team with that rotation, with that bullpen, only gave up like 625-ish runs. So you start to look at it and think, is there any way the 2016 Tigers can even hope to get back to that, you know, that level with that rotation? There is, uh, and I definitely think it's going to take a little bit more money than what the Tigers have let on spending so far. Um, you know, if you kind of go a little bit cheaper on the pitching, you know, maybe you spend big on the, you know, the in the outfield and go get a Ioana Cespedes or a Jason Hayward or whatnot. Um, you know, you hope from some bounce back seasons from Victor Martinez and, you know, a breakout year from Nick Castellanos and, you know, hope that Miguel Cabrera and J.D. Martinez continue to do what they've been doing. Um, you know, you've got the, some of these, you know, air, some of these guys will, you know, internally already that could perform a bit better than they did in 2015. Um, but they don't have, I don't think they have the horses right now to do it. And they're definitely going to need to address this somehow, whether it's via trade or free agency or whatever. It was an interesting experiment that I went through this afternoon before we got a, a putting together our show notes this afternoon. <clears throat> Excuse me. I went through the, uh, what I project to be the starting nine, so to speak in the offense, uh, you know, so you're Miguel Cabrera, Nick Castellanos, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, kind of strung together their career average runs produced and just said, if each of these guys performs at average level, how many runs can we expect out of the starting nine? And this, this assumes that it's Tyler Collins in left field. People will say, hey, platoon in with Rajay Davis. That, that doesn't work. They, they're, they're worth exactly the same number of runs. So one or the other doesn't matter. You're still going to get about 52 runs out of that combo. The final total of uh, projected runs scored based on the, these guys' career averages, is only 652 runs. Now, I get that's based on 2015. That's based on both Miguel Cabrera and Victor Martinez putting up a combined eh, 80 runs fewer than what they normally do. Okay, you know, fine. So you attack on 80 to that. You're still only at like 730 runs, and that's still far, far short of where you need to be, again, unless you're going to put all the stress on the starting rotation and have, you know, a Max Scherzer and a good Justin Verlander and a great Anibal Sanchez I, I would want to kind of explore this option because to me it seems obvious. It's so much easier just to replace the one guy, replace the one left fielder, bump up your run production, and then you can go ahead and you know take it easy on the pitching staff and go spend less money, you know, a couple of mid-level guys or whatever. Um, there was an, a post on the site that had, had brought up the name Austin Jackson, and he just so happens to be a guy who uh, gives you that extra bump in the run production area. It's not a huge bump, but it's enough to get you, you know, 20 to 30 more runs above what Tyler Collins would give you. Can you see Austin Jackson coming back and playing like left field? Maybe. Um, you know, I, I don't know if the Tigers would necessarily go that route. Um, but one thing to touch on with Jackson is that, you know, he will produce a little bit more offense than Tyler Collins. He's also going to save more runs yeah. than Tyler Collins. And I think that that's a big one there. You know, having a plus defender out there in left field is going to help the pitching staff a little bit more and maybe even kind of outperform some of their peripheral numbers. Um, so, you know, you could definitely see a noticeable improvement in that regard. And that's not necessarily something that shows up in the, in the runs created stat line. Mm -hmm. Um, so getting, you know, a guy who can play his position well too, 
Uh, yeah, you know, we're definitely seeing, seeing, especially with the Royals this year, that a run saved is just as good as a run scored. Uh, and getting a, you know, a good two-way player like Jackson, you know, he's going to cost a lot. Scott Boris is his agent. Uh, so we'll oh, see right. exactly, you know, what, what kind of contract he commands. But if they go that route, it would be interesting to see how do they use him, uh, especially because he's, you know, pretty versatile. He can play left, he can play center, um, you know, he can fill in for ghosts. And if they have another, another guy that they want to plug in left field too, he, he gives them a few more options than your run-of-the-mill left fielder. I had brought up two other names in that post that I put up there, this kind of this thought exercise and trying to calculate how many runs they need and how many can they actually get. And the two other names that came up uh, in terms of left fielders who are going to be available as free agents um, that can give you the 80 to 90 runs total by the end of the year uh, was, was Dexter Fowler and also Jason Hayward. And, and I, I have this feeling without having done a whole lot of research into those two guys in particular uh, who who's the more likely of that combo in terms of just free agent price? I think Fowler is definitely going to be cheaper than Hayward. Uh, you know, I think Hayward's definitely going to be one of the most sought after free agents on the market. I think he's the youngest of all of the free agent outfielders out there right now. He deb- debuted very young with the Atlanta Braves, um, so he's going to be he's going to really command a long contract because of that. Um, and, you know, and he's still got a little bit of untapped potential. Uh, you know, he's still only 26 years old. Um, so, and a lot of people have projected him to really kind of be a, you know, a big time power bat in, you know, in a corner outfield. He had 27 home runs in 2012. Uh, hasn't necessarily approached that point ever since then, but he's a guy that, you know, he could be a 2020 player offering gold glove defense in the outfield. And I think that teams are still going to pay for that, even if he hasn't necessarily lived up to all of his potential quite yet. Well, one way or the other, I'm, I'm of the opinion, and it's funny because I know we talked just a couple weeks back on several different podcasts about the issue of Tyler Collins and could he be the regular starter. And I, I, it's, this is a classic case of a gut-level feeling that is totally unsupported by the figures, by the actual numbers. And for weeks I said, oh, yeah, you can keep Collins. You know, that's fine. You lose some run production. But as long as you do something okay with the pitching staff, you can make up for it. And that's, <laughs> No, it's actually not true. When you put the the hard numbers behind it, uh, like I said, to to make up for that loss of run production on the pitching side, you're going to have to uh, go spend big for an ace and then really hope to God that uh, Anibal Sanchez has another career year and not to suffer from this home run-itis that he had this past year. I don't really have a whole lot of faith in Sanchez just because of that long, long injury history. It brings up this, this question that I posed on the site. Why not trade Sanchez and really... My point in saying that is it's not because, oh, we can get something, you know, some kind of a big haul in return for him. It's really just about dumping the salary at this point because the guy is, uh, what is it, $17 million at this point per year? I think, yeah, it's just under $17 million per year. Um, you know, I don't necessarily agree with that idea of trading Sanchez because, you know, dumping the salary is good and all, but at the same time, you'd like to get a little bit more back for someone like that than, you know, what they would feasibly get for Sanchez. Um, you'd like to get a little bit more than, you know, kind of an okay prospect or two. Um, and Dave Dabrowski isn't necessarily around anymore to turn an awful contract into an all-star second baseman. Um, so I don't know if that's the best idea for them now. It's almost kind of a, you know, wait and see, hope he hope Sanchez rebounds next year. And then if he does rebound at any point, you know, if the season goes south and they get towards the trade deadline and the Tigers are struggling, maybe you deal Sanchez then. 
or maybe you wait until the next offseason and deal him then because he has, you know, he has one more year left on his contract, and I still think he has a team option for 2018 after that. Um, so, you know, he's got still got a couple years of control left there that if another team finds that enticing, maybe they'd be willing to pay a little bit more for that. I just don't see it. I, and this is the point that I brought up in the post. Uh, the math does not add up for me. When you have five rotation slots, you have Verlander locking down at least one of those spots. You have Alavila saying that he wants to, to target two starting pitchers, so now we're up to three starters in the rotation. Uh, I think that Shane Green, I really think he's coming back as a starter. I think that's what they, they signed him on to do. I don't see them sticking him in AAA for the rest of the year, so I think there's your four spots. Verlander, two unknowns that are you know yet to be picked up in the offseason, plus Green. That leaves one spot open. Um and I'm thinking to myself, I don't really, I don't know. I, I kind of see Daniel Norris ending up being the number five starter. It just seems to me that there's there's a logical, I guess, uh, what's what's the word there? There's not a logical spot for Sanchez, especially with the way he's been performing. Uh, I don't think you can afford to keep a guy who costs that much money who's only going to give you three, three and a half months of service. Well, I, I don't know. It's definitely tough to say. Um, you know, I don't necessarily want to read too much into Alavila's comments uh, quite yet. I, I said last week that, you know, it's nice that he says that, you know, we want two starters. But at the same time, you, you, GMs will say that. They will say they want to address the bullpen. Dave Dabrowski never addressed the bullpen. You know, they'll say they want a couple starters. They come back with Alfredo Simon. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, going verbatim on what Alavila says at this point, I think is, you know, setting ourselves up to potentially be disappointed lately uh later on uh and you know hopefully uh you know we come back pleasantly surprised with what he does this offseason you know as long as he doesn't bring back alvarado simon i I consider an improvement already because i'm not even sure what was going through dave dombrowski's head that made him think yeah that's that's a good idea i'll trade one of my up-and-coming shortstops plus one of my top prospect pitchers for alfredo simon i mean really what were you thinking dave the only thing that makes sense to me the only thing that makes sense is that somewhere in Dombrowski's head, he thought, hey, Simon had a really good first half last year. Maybe I can get one solid half out of him, you know, the first half of 2015. And by then we'll be in a good spot. I can trade him off at the deadline and do something else. That, that is the only thing that makes any sense to me. Maybe. I don't know. I, that was just bad. Just can't. I can't get any further into his head than that. It just It's the only thing that makes sense. So. Yeah, so here we are, you know, saying trade Sanchez and just, uh, I know you're going to talk a little bit later about wanting to get rid of Iglesias as well. It just seems like uh, there's, we're just, this is what the 2015 season has done to us now. We're we're basically calling for a full-on burn it to the ground, start over. I mean, what else can you do at this point? Well, I don't necessarily think that I'm calling for, you know, the burn it down, start over. I know other people, (coughs) Kurt Menching, have suggested that type of thing. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's tough to say exactly, you know, I mean, I think we're, we're going through it now. It's tough to see exactly how the Tigers come back, you know, with the payroll constraints they have now and still win the division next year. They've got, you know, a tall task ahead of them in the Royals and, you know, whoever else improves in the division, uh, and they have a lot of work to do. Yeah, I don't think either of us is literally calling for, you know, burn it all down, burn it to the ground, start over. It just feels kind of sometimes like, wow, if you're going to consider... You know, ideas like getting rid of Sanchez or getting rid of Iglesias. We have a question coming up about possibly getting rid of Justin Verlander. It feels it just kind of feels that way. Like, man, maybe there's it's it's a weird thought 
you know, to kind of process. Um, but like, uh, you know, like I said, it's, it's going to be an interesting off season, no matter what happens, as long as they don't bring Alfredo Simon back, I'm, I'm pretty well happy. If they happen to sign a, a top tier ace like Granky or Price, so much the better, but uh, they've got to fix left field or we're going to finish in third place. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know why we even try to predict this stuff to begin with, because it never works out the way we think it's going to. So, all right, that will wrap it up for our warming in the pen segment. We'll take a quick break, come back with our high and tight segment. You know what? Baseball is kind of a grumpy old curmudgeon. I'll tell you what that means when we get back. Bring a fly ball, center field. This one's deep, going back, Borges at the warning track, looking up, and it's gone! A home run! Amazing. How about it? First chance to hit 400, and Miguel Cabrera delivers in his first at-bat of the day. And welcome back from the break. We are into the high and tight segment. What's hot and troubling in the news these days? What's what's the trend line looking like? Baseball, Rob, is uh, kind of turned into a grumpy old curmudgeon, or maybe it always has been, and we just never noticed. But one of the big headlines... Uh, Major League Baseball wants its players to stop spraying champagne into the stands when these teams are celebrating division titles or pennant wins or what have you. What, are we not allowed to have any fun anymore? I don't think so. You know, we're not allowed to have bat flips. We're not allowed to spray champagne on people. Um, you know, what? what's next? We're not allowed to, you know, throw 95 miles an hour anymore. <laughs> it's too hard. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. <laughs> um, it's a true story, actually, when... Uh, I think I've mentioned it before. I'm, I'm a big fan of that Ken Burns documentary on baseball, that nine, ten disc set. And I watch it every couple of years. I always get a kick out of the fact that when the very first pitcher first developed the curveball, figured out how to throw a curveball and make the ball do that weird dip and you know spin thing, uh, that the president of Harvard at the time banned baseball or tried to ban baseball from his school because of that pitch. And he said because they're calling it the deception pitch. And Harvard does not stand for deception. They were they were too you know principled to, to do that. So yeah, maybe from the get go, baseball was just kind of an old grump. You know, like no, you can't do that. That's uh, no more champagne, no more bat flips. Uh, did you happen to hear that? Uh, I, I mean, I haven't verified this. I keep forgetting to look, but I heard a rumor that Jose Bautista actually got fined for that bat flip. Is that? Did you hear that? I did not hear that. Uh, okay. I would not be surprised if he did. Um, and I don't think he cared. I think that's a, that's a bad sign right there. I mean, it's one thing to say that a pitcher, opposing pitcher doesn't like a bat flip. You know, he might throw at you the next time. But I, if they actually got involved at the, at the MLB level and find him for that, man, I mean, why, why bother? Why bother anymore, Rob? The, the top Google search for Jose Bautista find uh, turns up more about him saying something about replay back in 2014 than it does about anything with his bat flip. Okay. Well, maybe maybe there was no fine for that. but I, just... I trust the Googles. Yeah, that's probably a safe bet. Um, on top of that, the other big news item, and uh, this is just great, because I asked you last week if you thought Don Mattingly was going to get fired, and you said no. It would have happened already if it was going to happen at all. And then, like, literally the next day, Don Mattingly wasn't fired necessarily, but it does sound, uh, it sounded like there was, it was a mutual parting of ways. I'm not sure how much you take that as gospel truth or whatever, but end result is Don Mattingly is not with the Dodgers anymore. And this gets back to something I kind of wanted to get into last week, but we didn't really get into it because Mattingly hadn't been fired. That is a crap ton of managers getting let go from their positions this year. I mean, how many are we up to? It was like, 
Bud Black was one. Um, Socius, it seems like, was on that list. Uh, Lloyd McClendon from the Mariners. Matt Williams. Matt Williams was just let go. I, there's a couple that I'm forgetting. It just seems like an odd year for you know managers not holding on to their jobs. It just kind of makes you... It makes me wish the Tigers had let Brad Osmus go. There's actually a nice little pool of managers on the open market now that they could have uh, chosen from. And I'm pretty sure most of these guys are going to be gone, you know, off the market with other teams by the time Osmus's contract is up. There are, but there's not necessarily that home run candidate available. There's no, you know, Terry Francona back in 2013 or obviously Joe Madden when he opted out last year. Um, so it's, you know, it's tough to say that the, ti- that the Tigers kind of missed out by not firing Osmus. Um, you know, and with the rumors we heard about it being him or Ron Gardenhire, I'm not necessarily disappointed that the, that the Tigers didn't do that. Uh, you know, it's still very on the fence about a Gardenhire-led team, um, you know, and some of the other guys. I think everyone else there has their own flaws as well. Yeah, it seems like, you know, we've, as we've said in the past, most baseball managers all have a, kind of the same basic flaws in terms of playing the game the old school way and making some strategical moves that just really don't make sense on paper, never really have. But these guys are never going to let go of some of those moves just because that's, you know, that's old school baseball and that's the way we've always done it and so on and so forth. Uh, I want to kind of dig in a little bit into this uh, Mattingly situation because um, I know you, you mentioned last week or maybe the week before that you wanted to read or you had got the book uh, The Best Team Money Can Buy. Uh, have you had a chance to kind of dig into that at all? I have not. I actually, uh, side note here, I um, I saw the movie The Martian last weekend. Okay. Fantastic movie. Uh, and then I started reading that book instead. <laughs> okay. Very very good movie, very good book. I highly recommend it. But long story short, no, I haven't started the book. Okay, I was I was just curious if, if you'd gotten into it at all, and if if they'd touched on any of the, uh, you know, clubhouse dynamic or what what Mattingly himself was like. It just seems like it's a it's a really difficult situation over there in Los Angeles uh, with the Dodgers because they spend so much damn money, and the expectations are super super high. Uh, because of that, because the payroll is so high, it's basically you win us a World Series or, you know, don't come back until you do kind of kind of thing. I, I almost wondered if, you know, maybe Don Mattingly kind of got fed up with that mentality because, let's face it, he's gotten them to the postseason again and again and again. Uh, just like with the Tigers, though, you know, in some of our fan base, it's kind of this attitude of that's not good enough. Getting to the postseason, clinching your division is not good enough if you don't ultimately bring back the ring the whole season is just kind of a waste. <laughs> so, you know, is, is it is it possible that, you know, Don Mattingly was basically, you know, at his wit's end and saying, you know, I get, I get no respect for, you know, getting you guys to the, the postseason over and over again. If it's going to be World Series or bust, I think I'd rather go uh, try my hand somewhere else. I think that makes sense. Um, and with the new front office in place, you know, it's tough to say exactly what his relationship was like with a lot of these new school guys. Um, you know, have you have a bunch of guys who you know didn't necessarily play the game. Um, you know, I'm not necessarily saying that's a good thing or a bad thing, but a lot of these new guys coming in, you know, the quote unquote Ivy League educated, you know, mathematician business type guys, as opposed to quote unquote baseball men. Um, it's it's tough to say exactly how that dynamic was going. Um, you know, the Dodgers. It seemed. I, I feel like Mattingly kind of felt like he was a lame duck, uh, you know, no matter how long or how well he did. Um, 
because, you know, you've got this, you know, different philosophy in there, you know, completely different from the guys that hired him initially. Um, and I feel like, he, you know, he kind of sensed that he was, you know, his, he was on borrowed time, you know, as soon as that, that new group came in. Mm. Um, and instead of, you know, waiting until he slips up and gets fired, uh, he just kind of, you know, took the, took the high road out and said, you know what, let's just call it like it is and I'll see you when I see you. It's just kind of a fascinating thing for me. Uh, I know I'm I'm the last guy to be talking about this because I'm the one that's calling for Brad Osmus's head on a platter, and I have been for over a year, and that's really not my style anyway. I kind of laugh at the mentality, you know, that says uh, if the team is underperforming, then fire the manager, uh, because I really do think in most cases the manager has you know not a whole lot to do with the end result. It's it's usually on the players, uh, so it's just kind of funny to me the the reasons why a team ends up getting rid of a manager. And like I said, this year, there have been so many of them. The Pirates getting, or no, sorry, uh, the, the Padres, right? Got rid of Bud Black. Yeah. Uh, you know, situations like that where you go, it, it's hardly his fault that they've had, uh, you know, such a bad roster for so long. Uh, what What is the, um, what do you think is the driving uh, motivation, I guess? You know, what's the mentality there that a front office would say, time time to get rid of the guy? Uh, it's tough to say. Um, you know, maybe it, obviously, you know, performance on the field has something to do with it. Um, but in some cases, you know, maybe it's just relationship with manager and GM. Um, you know, I don't think it's like a typical, you know, boss employee relationship where, you know, the employee has certain, you know, certain rights to everything, you know, that, you know, baseball teams can kind of pay these guys whatever they want to, to make them go away. Um, and so it's not like, you know, your usual job where, you know, your boss can't fire you without just cause or, you know, they're going to owe you a ton of money or whatever. Uh, baseball teams can just kind of give you that ton of money to shut up and go home. Um, so I don't necessarily know. I, I feel like, you know, more GMs now are looking looking towards guys that they, you know, they, they respect, that they have a similar, uh, you know, mindset with. Um, and one situation that I kind of, have been following closely is Jerry DePoto, the new GM of the Seattle Mariners. Mm -hmm. You know, he goes out and hires his, I believe his former assistant GM, uh, Scott Cervais, um, to be the Mariners manager. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people are kind of up in arms about this because, you know, Cervais hasn't managed at any level. Um, you know, you've other, you've got other much more qualified candidates out there, but DePoto, who has had, you know, issues with Mike Sosha in Los Angeles, uh, you know, he's kind of hoping to avoid, a similar type situation with a more established manager, uh, you know, here in Seattle. And, you know, you can't necessarily blame him for that, but it's definitely kind of an interesting dynamic to have, you know, this other guy in surveys who has never managed, you know, he's going into this big league clubhouse with a lot of big names like Nelson Cruz and Robinson Cano. And how is he going to kind of command the respect of that group and get them, you know, focused in the right direction, uh, you know, in 2016? Yeah. Not only uh, is surveys not have any, previous managerial experience he also was a former catcher for the houston astros sound familiar jeez yeah right how, he's not how... that handsome <laughs> that's that's the at least i don't he's... think i haven't seen a picture of him so i wouldn't be able to say <laughs> if, as I'm long just... as there's no pictures of him with a surfboard you know where he's half naked i think we're okay but how, how quickly do you think he got on the phone and called brad osmus and said help you know that's because um, osmus was coming into a very similar situation i mean aside from the you know no manager experience plus you know former houston astros catcher all that aside 
Osmus was coming into a very similar situation with some big name guys on the team, you know, in, in uh, Justin Verlander, Miguel Cabrera. You know, it's kind of a, a very similar situation to what you just described. It is. Um, but I think that, you know, Osmus was a, a guy that who that a lot of people were kind of touting as a future big league manager. You know, he had managed, uh, I think it was like Israel in the baseball World Baseball Classic. So, you know, he's got those few games or whatever it was under his belt. Um, but this is a guy that a lot of people were, you know, saying he's going to be a manager at some point. He had interviewed for a few other jobs. Um, so, you know, he was really kind of on the cusp of becoming a manager. Uh, Cervase was hired out of left field. No one knew who this guy was. You know, it was really kind of a shock that this that he was the one hired to be the manager, especially after working in a front office. Um, so I think the shock value that goes along with it, it makes it kind of bit, a bit different as well. Um, I'm not yeah, sure exactly how Cervase's, how long Cervase's uh, playing career was either. So, you know, I think Osmus gains a little bit of clout because of how long he played in the uh in the majors i i know i looked that up when i found out that he was uh a former catcher without exp- uh yeah yeah he actually had 11 years so he he played from 1991 through 2001 so it was actually kind of a very similar career path um you, you mentioned that he came out of the front office basically he was working in the front office and got hired and uh, i want to say i would i would almost put money on the fact that that's exactly what osmus was doing before he was hired i want to say he was working in uh, now I can't remember who it was. One of those West Coast teams. He was working the front office for maybe the Padres. Or he was working for the Padres. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So some some strong similarities there. Very very strange uh, route to go. But oh man, best of luck to Cervase, and I'm sure he's going to be talking to Brad Osmus quite a bit this year about how do you how do you do that? How do, what are the things to watch out for in, in making that transition from the front office to a freaking clubhouse? And you're the guy. And I know the Mariners are under. Um, They've they've got some expectations hanging over them, you know, as well. Uh, very similarly to the Tigers, like you said, with it, they spent all that money to get Robinson Cano and, and Nelson Cruz, and I, I think they really want to make a run for it. Don't you think? Yeah, they definitely do. Um, you know, hiring a guy like Depoto definitely speaks to that. He had a pretty good track record in Los Angeles, um, so it'll be interesting to see kind of how his philosophy blends with what the Mariners are trying to do. Uh, their owner is definitely a bit more hands off than than the uh, Angels owner, Artie Moreno, uh, you know, who kind of signed some of those guys to big, you know, big major contracts, Josh Hamilton's and the C.J. Wilson's of the world. So it'll be interesting to see kind of how Depoto manages that, uh, along with the rookie manager and, you know, what that clubhouse looks like next year. Well, we'll see how it all shakes out. Like I said, it's a lot of managers uh, suddenly out of work in the 2015 season, which I guess the flip side of that is that means there's a lot of open job spots all of a sudden. So we're going to get to see the kind of shake and shuffle and see which one of those guys ends up where. I know uh, Don Mattingly in particular was being interviewed uh, by the Miami Marlins. So, um, yeah, who knows? We'll see where all these guys end up and whether it makes one bit of difference to the teams that they're going to. All right, we will wrap it up then with this high and tight segment. When we come back from the break, we go into the mob scene at home. And what does bacon have to do with baseball? I bet you can't wait to find that out. Coming back after the break. Swing the fly ball, left field, deep, going back, Cabrera, looking up, and it's gone, a home run! James McCann with the walk-off winner, number three. Rounding third, exchanges the low 10 with Dave Clark, and into the mob scene at home. And into the mob scene at home we go. I, I love that clip. I, I love any Dickerson clip. 
that ends with into the mob scene at home because that means that you just watched a, or, or heard a walk-off home run. I, I love it. Love it. Uh, Rob, I have six questions here from our, our listeners, and thanks again to everyone who contributed the questions. Again, make, uh, make sure you, to get us your questions for the podcast, either at Bless You Boys on Twitter or also at Hookslide BYB and at BYB Rob, or send us an email at bybtigers at gmail.com. Six questions here, three of them baseball-related, three of them not baseball-related. What say we go for the uh, baseball ones first and then finish up with the playtime? That gives me more time to think about those. I'm I'm good with that. Okay. Question number one comes from Jonathan Selden at J underscore the underscore man Selden. Wants to know about Hisashi Iwakuma. Says yay or nay if you could get him on a one-year deal. I think it's absolutely a yay uh, getting him on a one-year deal. He had a pretty good season last year. He's been you know a very good pitcher in his uh, limited uh, MLB experience. Uh, the problem is that I just don't see him moving out of Seattle, I definitely don't see him leaving the West Coast. You know, a lot of those Japanese pitchers have a tough, uh, you know, have a tough time leaving leaving the team that they sign with. You know, they're very, very loyal individuals. Um, and, you know, a lot of them want to stay on the West Coast to be, you know, a little, at least a little bit closer to home. Yeah, I, I don't know. I I mean, sure, if to do just about anything on a one-year deal. And, and Iwakuma's a, a pretty decent pitcher. I'm just looking over some of his... Uh, career numbers now that ERA plus of 117 stands out to me uh, as, a, as a decent number he's got a high uh, strikeout per nine rate a high strikeout per walk ratio I mean so some good things there and uh, certainly for somebody like that yeah for a one-year deal I know he's uh, let's see here he's 34 years old so I don't know if you'd want to go much beyond two years with that um, but yeah shoot for a one-year deal absolutely I would take that that would be a huge boost uh, to the starting rotation. Uh, David Bratz at Dbin Tex asks, needing two starters, does it make sense to trade Kinsler or Iglesias for a young starter with Machado and Jacoby? No. Stop trying to trade Jose Iglesias. What? This, oh, no. What? No. Okay. Don't do it. Don't do it. You, I, you know, see, okay, so let me back up. So, you know, I had mentioned before that the Tigers may try to trade Jose Iglesias. Uh-huh. Um, but then I went back and looked at the numbers mm-hmm. and just saw that, you know, despite Jose Iglesias kind of falling off a little bit in the second half, he was still an elite player at putting the ball in play at the plate um, and still incredibly good at, you know, making contact, not swinging at bad pitches, even though he had a very low walk rate, you know, he wasn't necessarily fishing for a lot of bad pitches there. Um, and, you know, the, the pitches he did make, he made contact on the strike zone, he was hitting fairly well. Um, so I think that he's definitely going to have, you know, better offensive numbers in 2016 than we had previously expected. I think he's better than, you know, the 250, 260 hitter that people ex- had expected him to be. I don't necessarily know if he's a 300 hitter, but I think he's, you know, better than we had anticipated um, and, uh, you know, a fair amount better than Dixon Machado. You are so full of crap. I'm just going to say it because, no, I'm going to put this on both of us because it was, what, four weeks ago, maybe, that you were talking about trading Iglesias because Dixon Machado would be an adequate substitute, and now you've done a complete 180. 
Uh, I mean, but you know what? I was the one four weeks ago saying, yeah, sure, keep Tyler Collins in left field. And now I'm in a complete 180 and said, absolutely not get him out of left field. Get So you know what? People um, don't take anything that we say on this podcast with a whole lot of, uh, it's not gospel truth. We're, we're still <laughs> processing all of this information as well. So, hey, I'm glad you've, you've rejoined the team, team Iglesias. That's, that's good to hear, Rob. It's good to be back. <laughs> I never left. Damn it. Uh, I, you know, I'm definitely on the same page with that. Uh, and I've you know, expressed that opinion very strongly in the past that, no, you don't trade Kinsler. That's, that's ridiculous. We've waited for so long to get a decent second baseman. We finally have one. You hang on to him. Uh, and as far as uh, uh, Jacoby, uh, I don't, you know, he's, he's not going to be ready for 2016 ball. What is he? Just, I mean, he just finished up in double-A this year, I think. So he hasn't even spent time at the triple A level yet. He is uh, apparently putting on quite a hitting clinic in the, what is it? The uh, Arizona fall league, the Arizona fall league. He is right now. Um, he had a, I believe it was a two homer game in there. Um, but going back to his numbers this season, he only spent half the season at double A. He hasn't right. even been there for a full year yet. Uh, you know, 23 years old. He was uh, drafted way back in 2013. Um, so he's had a couple years in the minor leagues, but he's still, you know, a, a still a year or, you know, a year, a year and a half away from the major leagues. He's definitely not ready for starting duty in opening day 2016. Yeah, suffice it to say that putting a couple of rookies up the middle where you need, you know, all that, all that good shining defense, uh, that would be, that would be disastrous. And he, we were just talking earlier about the lack of run production already built into this lineup coming up unless they do something, you know, build it up a little bit, beef it up a little bit in left field. Uh, I, I don't even want to think about what that run production level would look like if you take out Iglesias, uh, who was worth, here, let me grab that number for you. Uh, he was, over 162 games, Iglesias was worth 63 runs. Um, yeah, there's only a handful of guys on the team that did better than that, and it's J.D. Martinez, Ian Kinsler, and uh, Miguel Cabrera. So, yeah, you don't want to get rid of Iglesias if you, unless you want to lose all that run production. You certainly don't want to get, a, get rid of Ian Kinsler, who put up um, close to 85 runs produced this year. No, that, that would be a horrible, horrible idea. But it was just a question, so no, not, not picking on the guy that asked it. It's just I react viscerally to things like that. Uh, Josh Nelson, our friend over at Southside Sox, at SSS underscore Josh Nelson, uh, is trolling us like unbelievably like next level trolling here asking the question should the tigers consider moving justin verlander or miguel cabrera if 2016 falls apart no no okay next question <laughs> no but seriously we did talk a little bit about this uh you know behind the scenes and i think you brought up a kind of a good point in saying it's it is kind of a legitimate question right i mean if 2016 turns out to be a disaster verlander and and cabrera aren't getting any younger or more durable at what point do you maybe consider that that's actually a thing to to look into um you know i it's tough to say that they should ever really look into it Mm -hmm. um you know at this point when they still have some trade value uh i don't think that you're going to get proper value for you know what you're trading away um you know you're trading away a potential hall of fame pitcher potential hall of hall of fame hitter uh, and you're not going to get the same prospects back that you know the Tigers did when they traded for Miguel Cabrera in the first place. You're not going to get a pair of top ten guys. You know you're going to get you know something pretty good there, but I don't think you're going to get the same kind of franchise changing value or potential franchise changing value that you would when you're you know trading away your franchise basically. 
Um, and then if you wait too long, you know, if you wait a couple of years and they're 34, 35 years old, then I think that you've really lost any and all value that they have. And you're really just trying to get someone to eat some of that money by that point. Yeah. Nobody wants an expensive contract for an aging veteran. And, and I don't know that 2016 falling apart really has anything to do with it. I mean, these are your, these are your top horses, you know, this is where you start to build around, um, it just doesn't make sense. Uh, uh, just players of this caliber, I think, are the ones that you squeeze every last bit of playing time out of till the bitter, bitter end. And I think I said to you, you, you dump Miguel Cabrera when his legs actually physically fall off and not a minute before that. And the same would go for Justin Verlander, at least as far as, as far as I'm concerned. All right, so that's three baseball questions. Let's have a little fun with some non-baseball questions. We're going to go to uh, Emotional Toggers, who is at Emotional Tigers on Twitter. What TV shows are you going to catch up on in the off season? Um, you know, I'm not always huge on TV shows uh, in general. Um, you know, I'm more of a movie guy myself, and I've got a lot that I need to catch up on from the last year. Uh, but as far as TV shows go, uh, I would like to get through Mad Men. Uh, that'd be that'd be nice to Weird. to finally finish that one up. I I think I've kind of left off in middle seasons at a couple points, um, as well as I saw a uh, you know I've heard good things about a couple of the the shows on Netflix. Uh, what was the one Narcos about Pablo Escobar? Uh, hmm. That's always an interesting topic. What movies have you got stacked up then? Oh man, what movies don't I have stacked up? Um, <laughs> right. You know, pretty much anything from the last the last couple of years that I haven't seen in theaters. Yeah, it's funny how that works, right? I mean, I'm in the same boat. When baseball season is on, it's you know it's 24 seven. I'm watching games. I'm writing about it. I'm reading about it. There's there's no time to you know watch TV shows or movies or what have you. So yeah, by the time we get to October, I've got stacks and stacks and stacks, and you got to kind of pick and choose. I, I just watched um, Mad Max. I think it was right Fury Road. Yeah, uh, see, I saw that one in theaters, I did uh, and that was amazing in the theater. I love that. I don't think I slept that night after that was over. Ah, like, uh, yeah. Holy crap! Yeah. I I remember the the review that uh, that Spencer Hall of SB Nation wrote. Uh, first of all, he wrote the entire thing in all caps, which I found hilarious. <laughs> and he's, I think his big punchline was, "I feel like I can do anything except sleep or drive safely." Yes, that's exactly the feeling. And I watched that. Uh, you know, last thing before I went to bed and it was just, it was pointless. I might as well have just like taken a hot pot of coffee and poured it directly into my lap because that's, that's how much I was going to sleep that night. It was, ah, whoo, man. Uh, but we do watch TV shows around these parts. And I think the ones that I'm most for, uh, looking forward to catching up on is, uh, they're not even new ones is the thing. I'm, I'm like two years behind the, the trend. Um, I am working my way through Dexter, which I know like that season or that series wrapped up what last year year before that so it's that's already mm-hmm. done uh but i'm cutting my way through that one and then uh, we're also watching six feet under which is another cool uh series featuring michael c hall supposedly it's got like one of the absolute best uh season finales in the history of television so there's like five seasons on that one so uh, i got a couple things to work through here over the next few months um, movies on top of that, books. I want to read that same book um, that you mentioned, uh, The Best Team Money Can Buy. There's also another one about the Pittsburgh Pirates and their use of saver metrics, and I think that one is called, oh, God, Big Data. Uh, yeah, I think it's written by one of their beat writers, actually. I mean, I'm interested in reading that one. Yeah, that's those are both on the on the list. So a couple of Ian Fleming novels on the list, too. I've never actually read a James Bond novel. Wanted to cross that off my bucket list. So it's going to be a busy off-season doing non-baseball things. So maybe we'll devote an entire podcast to, 
TV show reviews, movie reviews, and book reviews. Because, look, there's people in the same boat, right? There are people for whom it just the world ends when baseball ends, and it's about to be over in, like, a week. So gather around the hot stove, friends. We will have all kinds of ideas for you after, after it's all said and done. Okay, uh, Neil Weinberg. Good friend Neil, friend of the podcast. We'll have to get him back on the show here in the next couple of months. He is at Neil Weinberg 44 on Twitter. Oh, boy. How many days of your life would a strip of bacon have to shave off your life before you stopped eating it? See, this one takes a little bit of math because nobody eats just one strip of bacon. Yes. Um, you got to think of like, I, you basically got to multiply it by like 10. So, <laughs> is that what you're doing? 10, I mean, yeah, pretty 10 much. 10 strips, Rob. Um, I, you know, why not? Right. Um, and the way I see it, you know, I, I'm kind of treating it like baseball players. Like once you hit 40, it's pretty much just all over. Um, so, uh, I don't know, math in my head here. Um, you know, it might have to take like a good, you know, a good week or so off my life before I kind of said, yeah, maybe not a full week. I, I don't know. That's, that to me is kind of a really, really low Really, really no. I, honestly, I, I looked at this question and I stopped reading the question when I saw a strip of bacon shave off because then all I could think of was like bacon shavings and I got hungry. So I went and made a pound of bacon and that's as far as I got in the question. By the way, best way to make bacon, uh, just this is a freebie for all you life hackers out there. You put it on a cookie sheet. You preheat the oven to 375. You put the whole damn pound of bacon, spread it out on the cookie sheet, put it in. Uh, the oven at 375, cook for 10 minutes, take it out, drain the grease, flip the strips over another 10 minutes. It is melt in your mouth. Like it literally just, just melts right in your mouth. It is so good. I have been known to, in my younger days, literally eat an entire pound of bacon, uh, because of that, that process. So see, but there's no, there's no danger involved with that one. You know, when you're making it on the stove, you have to, you know, dodge the, the gobs of oil that are coming flaming out at your bare forearms there. Uh, and so, you know, it, you got to live a little, come on, man. It's breakfast. It's not a effing saga quest. I mean, come on. I mean, I'm lucky if I'm really awake at that point anyway, I'm not, I don't know about, uh, chemical warfare <laughs> at that point in the morning but i love bacon i love 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 bacon and you know to your point uh you know i'm, I'm pushing 40 myself at this point it's kind of like i think i've done mostly everything i kind of wanted to do and i don't know like i have this kind of you know what's the word like a nihilist view of life anyway just take baseball as an example i love baseball you love baseball can we admit that baseball sucks it absolutely sucks every yeah. freaking year 29 fan bases go home sad, irritated, cold, wet, and hungry, and only one gets to, to celebrate. And that we do that year after year. Baseball sucks. It just and I don't does. even I don't even know what that one year is like. Yeah, that's true. I have no that's idea. true. And I don't know what that one year is like when I'm also old enough to celebrate with champagne. So there's there's my pity party. It was a long time ago. Um so even like the good stuff in life, baseball, it still has this root of suckage at it. So I'm I'm just kind of like, you know, whatever, screw it. Bring on the meteors, you know, bring on the apocalypse. If, if there's ever a mushroom cloud in the distance, I am going to be running headlong into it. Screw this, you know, bomb shelter. I'm going to be like a survivalist living on beans out of a can. No, 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 forget it. I'm going right for the blast center cancel my subscription so yeah bring on bring on the bacon as far as i'm concerned plus your headstone gets to say he died of bacon 
That would be so awesome. Oh, yeah. Friend, father, husband, bacon lover. That's that's what I wanted the headstone. There you go. So, sorry to disappoint you, Neil. It just uh, it didn't even... I know, this is in reference to the news coming out today that they found out that bacon is linked to carcinogens and cancer and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, I did, it did not even phase me. I just, it made me hungry is what it nope. did. Yeah. It's, it's, I feel like I feel like Neil's not going to be disappointed. I feel like he's going to be happy with the yeah, conversation. Maybe I don't know. I had the same reaction when I watched that documentary about McDonald's. It was a supersize me, and just how you know awful that food is for your you know for your entire system, immune system, and everything else. And I watched that whole thing, and I went, "Oh my god, I need a Big Mac. That looks so good." I know that's like not the feeling I'm supposed to have, but whatever. I'm too old to make apologies. So, final question. Justin Hines at DC Enigma, that's Enigma with a Y, says, your picks for Halloween costumes for each tiger. I definitely didn't go through every every tiger to think of some, no. um, but we've got, we've got a few in mind. I think James McCann kind of has the Captain America nickname on lockdown. Nice. Uh, so that'd be a good one for him. Nice. Uh, I think Stephen Moya as either Frankenstein or Lurch <laughs> would be good. I'd be I'd be interested to see that one. Damn it, Rob! I was taking a drink. God, that's perfect. Um, I would like to see Alfredo Simon as a ghost, just because I'd want him gone. <laughs> okay, nice. Um, and then uh, I think I think Andrew Romine would make a good James Bond. He's got very nice hair. Well, wow! Now that you mention it, yeah, he right? would. If he had some sort of English accent, he could be the next James Bond. It's totally true. I mean, he's he's on that fine line between possibly James Bond and also your next door neighbor who will offer you a hot dog when he's grilling it. I mean, he's got that kind of average Joe look, but it would it would pass for Bond. I think so. Wow. And then and then the the freebie is Alex Wilson as Star Lord. Star Lord. Okay. All right. I, I'm glad that we we literally did not compare notes on on this, and yet we did not overlap except for Alex Wilson. So I picked. I, I had four picks. Alex Wilson as Owen, the Raptor trainer from Jurassic World, because that's there we go. It's the same guy, right? You know, yeah. Chris Pratt. So also known as uh, Hatterberg. He will always be Hatterberg to me. Moneyball. You know. Yeah. Uh, Jose Iglesias has to go as Benny from the Sandlot. Just check those pictures out. You'll see exactly what I mean. Uh, if I were Miguel Cabrera, I would absolutely go in a Mike Trout outfit. I would do it. If I were Cabrera, I would put on a Mike Trout jersey and an Angels hat and just let... Uh, that, would be, that would be awesome. Come on. Go to a party, being Cabrera, dressed as Trout. That'd be funny. It would be awesome. And my final pick uh, would be Victor Martinez. He has to go as Jesus Quintana from The Big Lebowski. <laughs> that'd be good think about it think about it picture picture the <laughs> victor martinez with that outfit with that hair that it's uh yeah doing the, the roll thing <laughs> <laughs> uh we have some strange listeners that ask us some strange questions but you know what i'm cool with it it's it's a nice uh break from answering all the baseball questions and focusing on baseball topics so thanks for that um as previously previously discussed, I'm I don't have a Halloween costume for this year. Sounds like Rob does, so best of luck with your uh, with your costuming, whatever you may choose. All right, that's gonna do it for our end of the mob scene segment. When we come back, we'll wrap it up with the seventh inning kvetch, and Rob is gonna reveal to us the key to success for this off season. We will be right back. Three now. Here's the two two. Oh boy. 
Kurt Ball grabbed the outside corner. Victor not happy. Pitch that he felt went around the plate. You rarely see Victor complain. Brad Osmus better get out there quickly. Oh. And Victor got tossed. And welcome back from the break. This is it, the seventh inning Kvetch. We are almost completed with this episode of the podcast, number 11. Rob, we've done 11 episodes. Can you believe that? We we didn't celebrate the, the big double-digit one last I know, time. I know. I kind of feel like we should be, um, we have this kind of method of, you know, choosing pictures to go with the podcast post. I feel like all this time we should have been posting uniform numbers, you know, like this would be Sparky Anderson's episode, number 11. That'd but, be a good one. Yeah. Whatever. I don't know. The seventh inning Kvetch today is all about the offseason, and Rob has a fantastic plan and a key to success for the offseason. I kind of feel um, like like I was I was privileged to sort of see you birth this idea, because I, I think we were talking about this in the chat room a couple of days ago. I'm going to turn it over uh, to you and uh, kind of unfold the uh, the secret of success. Well, what we've seen with the Tigers is that they have a lot of holes and they don't necessarily have a lot of money to spend on that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, everything that I'm kind of going to say here, it all kind of, you know, is a secondary plan to the proverbial go out and buy everyone type of thing. You know, if Mike Illich wants to spend $250 million in next year's payroll, I think that's going to be a better plan than what we're doing here if the Tigers want to win in 2016. Yeah, but not uh, as likely. Probably not as likely, yeah. Okay. So one thing that I noticed when I was just kind of looking through at, you know, the free agents this offseason is that I noticed that there are a lot of fly ball pitchers. You know, one guy that we profiled on the site today is Ian Kennedy. You've also got a guy like Wei-Yin Chen, you know, Marco Estrada, uh, Chris Young. A lot of these guys induce fly balls at a very high rate. You know, sometimes they go out of the park and end up as home runs, but a lot of time they end up as lazy fly ball outs. And fly balls of the three different types of batted balls, you know, you've got fly balls, ground, uh, ground balls, and line drives. Fly balls have the lowest uh, batting average on balls in play because, you know, they're up in the air a long time. The outfielders have a lot of time to get underneath them. So if you don't necessarily spring for a top-of-the-line top pitcher like David Price or Zach Greinke, you can go out and get a couple of these starters, you know, Kennedy, Marco Estrada, guys who, you know, uh, give or take, you know, may, may cost you $10 million per year and are probably only going to be on your roster for, you know, three or four years or so. So you have a little bit more play, payroll flexibility there. You know, that's a good start for shoring up the rotation. You get a couple of mid-rotation guys, um, but then you still have to address things like the outfield. And one thing that I've noticed with, you know, a few of the outfielders out there is that there are guys, you know, you have some some rangy players, guys like Colby Rasmus, Chris Young, uh, Gerardo Parra, you know, who are coming off of decent but not, you know, amazing seasons, so they're not going to cost $20 million a year. Um, but one thing that all these guys in co- have in common is that they're great defenders. You know, you've got Rasmus and Young who have played center field before. Uh, Parra has won a couple couple gold gloves in right field, and he's got an incredible arm. And so you've got, you know, some of these guys. And what you can kind of do is if you kind of approach it this way is that, you know, you sign the fly ball pitchers, you sign these, you know, outfielders who can cover, cover a lot of ground, and then all of a sudden you're kind of doing what the Royals are doing here and, you know, trying to almost save more runs than you're creating. Um, you know, a guy like Chris Young absolutely murders lefties, so he'd be, a, you know, a great platoon option either in center field or in left. Um, you know, you've got uh, Para who, you know, hits pretty well against lefties. Colby Rasmus, not so much. Um, so you can still kind of, you know, pick and choose with lineups and whatnot with that. Excuse me. But um, 
But with that, you're almost, I like to call it coordinating the roster in that, you know, you're signing these fly ball pitchers, but then you're also going out and getting, you know, the outfielders that can go get those fly balls. You know, so a shot to the gap doesn't necessarily mean extra bases. You know, it may mean your left fielder kind of running it down out there and then, you know, it's an easy out. Uh, and, you know, if you do that much, that uh, enough, you're not necessarily relying on strikeouts, which are very expensive in free agency uh, to, to record outs. You know, the super rotation we saw in 2013, you know, their FIP actually outperformed their ERA because the defense was so bad behind them. Right. So if you're improving the defense behind them, you know, it's still one of the more undervalued commodities in baseball, then you're kind of, t- you're kind of taking a page out of the Royals playbook here in saving more runs than you're, than you're actually creating. Mm. Uh, but at the same time, you're definitely kind of exposing what I think is still a little bit of a market if inefficiency in the process. Um, you know, going back to the roster that the Tigers already have now, Justin Verlander had a very high fly ball rate this year and has been above 40% for his career, which is a pretty high number. You know, you've got a guy in Matt Boyd who has the potential to be a big-time fly ball uh, pitcher. Um, you know, he had some very good numbers in his few starts at Comerica Park this year, which, you know, is kind of encouraging. So you have the, you have the potential to really have kind of a, an underrated pitching staff uh, of guys, you know, who, you know, they're allowing a little bit more contact than usual, but with a good defense behind them and the right kind of defense behind them. Uh, you know, we said for years, you know, that uh, Rick Porcello never had a good defensive infield behind him. Um, you know, that I, and you, with this, you're kind of getting to the point where you have the right defense behind the right pitchers. And I think that that could, you know, pay some big dividends, especially for, you know, the relative amount of money that you're spending. Yeah, it's an interesting concept because especially, and I, I don't know the numbers on the guys that you mentioned, whether or not they happen to be uh, what we would call contact, you know, pitch to contact pitchers, you know, versus what we've typically seen in Detroit, the kind of the high powered arms that go for a lot of strikeouts. The, 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 the drawback of having those arms, the power arms I'm talking about, is that uh, those pitchers, you know, aren't as likely to give you a, a complete game or get into the eighth inning or that kind of thing. When Whereas, like, Rick Porcello surprised us, I think, in 2014 because he's so pitched to contact and just get quick ground balls that he was able to rattle off multiple complete games uh, in 2014. So it's it's an interesting concept if if you can get some of those high fly ball rate pitchers that happen to be more pitched to contact kind of guys, um, you take a little pressure off the bullpen at the same time. You do. And then there are some guys, you know, a bullpen arms available that kind of fit the same mold. Tyler Clippert is one that comes to mind. You know, he's a very high fly ball rate guy. Uh, you know, it, in the one of the problems with some of the, you know, this this idea in particular is that you're going to give a lot, you're going to give up a lot of home runs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, mm-hmm. with a lot of these guys, you know, most of them have a pretty low walk rate, which is good. Uh, so they're not allowing home runs with as many guys on base, which is nice. But at the same time, you know, if things go wrong, they can go very wrong. You can uh, have a guy that allows, you know, 30, 35 home runs in a year, uh, like we saw with Anibal Sanchez this year. When it goes bad, it goes very bad. Um, but I think that with uh, the point the rust that the Tigers roster is in now, uh, you know, if they're not spending enough money to bring in, you know, the ace-level pitcher, they may kind of have to take a little bit of this risk here. Um, but I think that, you know, acquiring the right outfielders to go along with these guys kind of mitigates that risk a, bit, a little bit. Yeah, and not only does it take the pressure off off the bullpen, but the, the other point that I was thinking of is uh, uh, just not only are you tailoring the pitching to the off or to the defense and vice versa, but I think this actually works a little bit better in Comerica Park because Comerica's got the bigger dimensions. You can kind of get away with. I mean, I, I realize you only play you know half of the games at home, but 
for that half, it seems like more of those fly balls are truly just going to end up being fly ball outs as opposed to, you know, into the seats home runs. You do. And then you look around the division, you've got Kauffman Stadium, which is an even more extreme pitcher's park than Comerica Park. You know, you've got uh, Target Field, another big time pitcher's park. Uh, you know, Progressive Field's pretty neutral. And then we know that, you know, U.S. Cellular Field is kind of a bandbox. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, you know, one in five, which is really kind of a, you know, a big time hitter's park. You know, Comerica Park has played relatively neutral as far as, you know, hitters versus pitchers go um, over the last several years. Uh, but I think it's still relatively stingy as far as home runs go. Yes. So if you get, you know, the kind of outfielders that can run, run down fly balls deep into the gaps, then I think you could have a lot more success. An interesting concept. And the focus on, uh, you know, what you're talking about, defensive run prevention by getting outfielders that can shag down those fly balls. Um, because earlier we were talking about the issue of run production and needing a left fielder who can actually produce runs because the alternative is you have to get a starting rotation that mirrors 2013. you got to have aces up the wazoo to bring that run prevention down. But the fact of the matter is, if you recall the numbers I was throwing around with the Tigers, they're going to land somewhere around 730-ish runs if they stick with the the lineup they have now uh, and don't upgrade in left field. Remember I said that you'd need to get down to around 630, 640 runs allowed on the pitching side. Those happen to be really, really close to the actual numbers uh, that the Kansas City Royals put up this year. So you're you're parallel to the Royals and saying... Hey, look what the defense does for them. It's 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 right on the money. The, the Royals scored 724 runs this year, and they won 95 games. They were able to keep opponents to 641 runs. Now, on the Pythagorean scale, that only that works out to be a 90 win season. So obviously they they squeaked out a few, um, you know, one run type games, low scoring games. But that's what you can do when you've got the bullpen. So I'm I'm not sure you know, how, how far the, the analogy goes and if the Tigers would have to really, really tighten up the bullpen to make that work. But there you go. There's there's a very recent living example of that kind of run production versus that kind of run prevention and doing it, uh, you know, without having to go load up on aces in your rotation. Yeah, well, I think the Tigers won't necessarily go full Royals with it either. You know, you still have Miguel Cabrera. You still have right. Victor Martinez. You still have a few of these high-powered bats in the lineup. And then if you get, you know, if you go out and get, you know, an outfielder or two, kind of like I mentioned, um, you know, especially a guy in Chris Young who, you know, hits lefties very well, you know, you can kind of boost some of those offensive numbers. You're not necessarily relying on that 730 runs, which is based on Tyler Collins in left field. You know, if you boost his production or some, you're getting up to closer to that 750 mark that you've been touting. Yeah, and, and 750 is just kind of a ballpark figure, um, you know, just kind of based on an average number of runs scored for the Tigers over the last several years. It's not a hard number, you know, fixed that way. Um, the other part of that equation, too, is I said, that's only Miguel Cabrera performing at average career levels. And certainly, as we know, in 2012 and in 2013, he performed well better than those career averages and was closer to uh, 130, 140 runs. Uh, above his career average 120 so right there you could get a boost of 10 to 20 more runs if Cabrera is Cabrera and not just you know average Miggy uh so you know I don't know uh for for a guy like Colby Rasmus you brought up his uh his career run production is about 72 so I mean there's there's a boost of 15 to 20 over over Tyler Collins you could make it work and Rasmus in particular is kind of a, you know, hit or miss type player. You know, you look at his individual career numbers and, you know, one year he's spectacular. The next mm-hmm. year he's absolutely awful. So he carries a lot of risk uh, as far as that goes. He had a pretty good year this year. 
uh, but was pretty bad in 2014. Yes. Uh, I think he had a few injuries that kind of weighed him down. Um, but, you know, so if you get kind of one of his better years, then that offense is looking even better yet. Yeah, he definitely had a, a down year in 2014. If I just said his, his career average run production is sitting somewhere around 72, uh, he only posted like 43 in 2014. So, yeah, a really off year for him. But What did he do in 2013? 2013, um, about 60. I'm doing all the math in my head right now. Uh, it's that whole runs created, but you have to adjust it by about 10%. Hmm. So uh, about 65. Really? 65, yeah. I thought that was a good year for him. Huh. Yeah, I mean, well, 65, 66 compared to 72 is an average. So, I mean, he's right around there, you know. Not bad. Looks like his best year was actually way back in 2010, though. Anyhow, yeah, uh, so tell me more about some of these pitchers that, you, that you'd mentioned, though, because I was curious about the, the kind of the contact rate type question. I mean, are we looking at, when you mentioned like Estrada, uh, Chris Young for the Royals, um, the, I mean, these aren't guys that are going to be the, the strikeout pitchers, right? Not necessarily, but, uh, you know, with a couple of these guys, especially um, Ian Kennedy, you know, he's still struck out over a batter per inning this year. Mm. You know, he's kind of one of those guys that he works up in the strike zone quite a bit. So he's going to get a fair number of strikeouts, um, but is also going to allow, you know, quite a few, you know, fly balls, a few home runs as well. You know, other guys like Estrada, Wei-Yin Chen, uh, Chris Young, they're not striking as many guys out. I think that Estrada was around, you know, seven strikeouts per nine innings this year. Wei and Chen sounds about the same. Um, Chen comes with a very good, a very good walk rate, which is nice. And a lot of his, uh, a lot of his career numbers have come pitching in the AL East. So you wonder what getting out of that bandbox division will do to his production as well. well getting um, out of Camden Yards. Yeah. Um, one of the one of the downsides to Chen is that he's another Scott Boris client. Uh, so. You know, you you can't escape the evil Boris no matter where you go. Um, but uh, you know, some of the, so yeah, some of these guys aren't going to necessarily be striking out as many as many batters as you would hope. Um, but you know, there is some hope here. Uh, you know, Estrada had a couple seasons where you know in 2012 he was up over a batter per inning. In 2013 he was you know just under a batter per inning. So he definitely has that you know you know the strikeout capability. Uh, you know, it kind of comes along with it. You know, it's tough to say. Uh, he's kind of declined over the last couple of years. Um, so we'll see exactly how it goes with that. But uh, with Estrada, his fly ball rate has actually risen over the last couple of years. So, you know, you don't necessarily know if it was kind of an adjustment he made that said, you know what, screw the strikeouts. We're just going to go and get all these easy fly ball outs or what. But, uh, you know, it's definitely an option. Well, the thing that kind of excites me as we talk about these, you know, various ideas and the numbers that go around it and we're, you know, running spreadsheets and looking up stats and talking about all this. The thing that kind of excites me in all of this is that we've got a guy in Sam Menzen who's, you know, the the, the title again was, I think, Director of Baseball Operations. Yeah, I mean, you got a fellow stat head who's, who's the main guy supplying Al Avila with the numbers. So kind of encouraging to think that as we're sitting here having these conversations and knocking them around that maybe, you know, a guy like Sam Menzen is noticing the exact same things and will be, you know, drafting some proposals, you know, to put on Alavila's desk, you know, in a couple of days going, Hey, here's what you want to do. Get some high fly ball rate pitchers and a couple of guys that can run them down in the outfield. I definitely hope so. You know, I, I, honestly, I hope he, he's already seen all this stuff and already run all the numbers and already given it to Alavila. But, uh, you know, it's, it's nice to have kind of this, you know, focus on saber metrics that we didn't necessarily have before. Uh, it's tough to say exactly, you know, what the Tigers were looking at when they were, 
you know, scouting guys and, you know, trying to figure out which players to acquire before. Uh, I imagine that statistics came into it, you know, in some fashion. Um, but, you know, kind of having, you know, a, more of a department searching for you know, these inefficiencies here and seeing, you know, what what will give them an edge. Uh, you got to you got to think that that bodes well for their chances in 2016. Yeah, I'm sure they were using statistics to some level. And, and, and Dave Dombrowski tried to say that he was uh, in his uh, Boston press conference when he became the uh, not the general manager, but you know what I'm talking about, uh, president of baseball operations there. Well, I don't even know what he is because I think they hired some other guy as like the president of something else. You know, I think he's more like the business side president of right. the organization or whatnot. So I think Dombrowski's just like the supreme overlord or whatever. <laughs> we don't know what his title is. Uh, I don't know. I, but the point is, is that when he started to try to talk about advanced metrics, you know, in that press conference, it, it seemed very obvious that he was kind of out of his league in what he was even talking about. And I was even more interested to see some interviews. I want to say it was with Sam Menzen uh, just recently uh, where he talked about the fact that, um, you know, w- when he was asking for more help in the, in the, in the metrics department and the advanced statistics and uh, some of the uh, data sources that they're you know now paying for. And he was saying, Hey, we were way behind kind of a dinosaur group here in terms of the access levels that we had to the, to the data that we needed. And, and certainly Al Avila himself said as much, he said, this is one of the areas where we've lagged behind the rest of the teams in the league. So yeah, I don't know what they were using in the past, but, it certainly sounds like it's going to take several leaps forward in terms of their use of advanced analytics. So it's, like I said, it's just kind of cool to think that we can sit there and talk about this stuff and we're probably not going to be too far disconnected from, you know, the front office in that respect as, as it might've been in years past. So with that said, uh, I think that's going to about wrap things up for yet another episode of the voice of the turtle podcast. Uh, Rob, anything for the post game presser? Not that I can think of. I'm just uh, excited to watch the rest of the World Series, uh, as well as, uh, you know, kind of a guilty pleasure of mine, the Pistons. Uh, their season starts up tonight. So hopefully hopefully they can uh, turn it around and be a little bit better this year. Okay. And my guilty pleasure this year is the Lions, and I'm going to continue to appreciate the fact that they just fired their offensive coordinator and hired a new one whose name is Jim Bob Cooter. And Wait, well, Yes. Seriously? No, dead serious. They they fired a Lombardi as the offensive coordinator. The guy they hired, Jim Bob Cooter. Does he have to wear like the possum hat at all times during practice? You have to. I think he wants to. I mean, we're, I hope so. We're talking about a guy whose name was James Robert Cooter and decided to go by Jim Bob. Uh, Is he like trapping his lunch? You know, during practice, like between drills, he's like skinning a squirrel and grilling it up or something. God, I hope so. I don't, that would be that would be amazing. You just talk about a gift from the football pictu- gods, though. I'm picturing Davy Crockett on the sidelines <laughs> at the next Lion game. Oh no! I really hope that this happens. Oh no, 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 no! And the the headline, the piece, the, the headlines, things people, the radio shows are talking about. Um, you know, get to know your co- cooter. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> what other cooter can you compare this one to? I mean, it's uh what a gift. What an absolute gift from the football gods. I really don't care how the Lions perform this year. We've got Jim Bob Cooter. Oh, boy. And on that note, folks, remember, we are only one half of the conversation. You are the other half. Uh, go ahead and leave your comments for us at the website, blessyboys.com. Just find the podcast post and have at it. Uh, you can also reach us on Twitter at HookslideBYB. And BYB Rob, of course, uh, the main account at Bless You Boys. Or send us your emails at BYBTigers at gmail.com. So, 
on behalf of Robert Jackie and all the rest of the bacon lovers in this world, this is Hookslide saying don't spray your champagne into the crowd unless, of course, it's directly at me. And we'll see you next time on The Voice of the Turtles. <laughs>